Today's interview is a return guest, Chris Williams, who acquired a bookkeeping business in 2021. Chris was an early Acquiring Minds interview, and I wanted to have him back on to see how things have gone for him as owner of the business that he had just acquired when we spoke the first time. This was a great interview with Chris. My favorite part is when he reflects on what he would have done differently in his very first months as new owner during the transition. So listen for that. Also, I'm going to start having more conversations like this one, where I bring on a previous guest to see how they have fared in their acquisition. I love these check-ins. There's so much growth that happens in an entrepreneur when they graduate from searcher to CEO, and so much for us to learn from them. Chris is a perfect example. Here he is, one-time searcher, now CEO of System 6, Chris Williams. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Chris Williams, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Good to see you, Will. Chris, you were a guest back in November of last year, 2021. Our interview was actually in October. Yeah, (laughs) 14 months go quickly. Uh, You had recently acquired a bookkeeping business and also financial back office services um, called System 6. So I wanted to check in with you uh, and see how things are going uh, in these in these 14 months since. Start us off, though, Chris, with 30 seconds on on you and just remind people about who you are and, and then System 6 as well. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Will. Um, also, thank you for everything you're doing for the ecosystem. I know myself and others benefit from it. So um, it's been awesome to see Acquiring Minds grow as well since then. Uh, 30 that. seconds on me. So I had a relatively... I guess, typical path into search fund ecosystem. Um, out of undergrad, I did five years in finance, so banking and then private equity. And then I went and got my MBA where I discovered search. Um, I ultimately started searching in 2020, fall 2020, and acquired System 6 in July 2021. I ultimately acquired through a typical self-funded SBA acquisition, seller note, investor capital as well. Um, System 6, when we bought the business, was about 18 people, two and a half million dollars of revenue, just over a million dollars of EBITDA. Obviously, we've evolved, evolved since then, and I'll go into it. But um, 
Yeah, that's the quick background on me. I live in the Bay Area. System 6 is a remote business, so it's been important to me to continue to build my life out here in Northern California. We miss you, Will. Um, <laughs> that's great. Thank you, Chris. Well, let's do the first thing is let's just hear kind of the bullet points of the business. So as you said, it was about 18 people, two and a half million in, in revenue, a million in EBITDA. Um, have those numbers changed one way or the other in the, in the last 14 months? Yeah, so we are... Um, We'll do about 3.6, 3.7 million of revenue this year. We're a 30 person business now. Keep in mind, both at 18 and at now 30, 31, um, not all of our staff are full time. They're all US based, they're all W 2s. But one of the big things we're providing to our team members is flexibility and the work experience they have. So our average team member is about 30 to 33 hours, probably. We have a couple. Mm -hmm who are below that, a couple that are full-time. Uh, but yeah, in terms of people that we're managing, it's it's now 31. Um, shocker, EBITDA has not grown directly with revenue. Um, you know, that I think that is very typical, especially if you are accelerating the growth in the business. And we also were, you know, acquired the business at a time at 18 people where, you know, that could be managed with a certain amount of like management dollars. If you think about, you know, dollars out to payroll costs from non- service delivery employees. Now that we're 30, there's like a lot more time, you know, my salary, other people's salary going towards managing the business. And so that's a big part of the reason that naturally margin comes down. So um, EBITDA this year will probably be about 10% up, you know, when revenues, um, you know, closer to 25 to 30% up this year. Yeah. And so these 12 additional people that you've hired, they're not all just frontline bookkeepers. There's, there's kind of a management layer, or at least the, a few of the so folks are. No, the people that we have hired are frontline accounting staff in you know different levels of our organization. So bookkeeper, manager, kind of senior manager. But what that has allowed us to do is the, the main sort of new role that we've created is a head of people role that came from inside the organization. So hiring those people freed someone up to become a head of people. And then we have a couple of sort of mid-level managers that now have part of their job where they're doing technology operations, process improvement up work. So we've created more, um, you know, non sort of revenue service delivery time inside of the business um, without necessarily hiring new people in those seats. And yeah. I think that's a that's an interesting like org structure thing, which is, hey, it's very obvious to me, like what the leadership structure needs to look like at 60 people. Um, but, you know, when you're at 18, if you go hire those three or four people, like they might be bored if you hire them all at, mm. you know, 20 people. So how do you kind of bridge the gap as you need more management um, when there's not necessarily like full time, even if you're willing to spend the money, like full time work for those people, um, you know, at the size of organization we're at now, which is 30 people. And and what do you what? So what's the answer? How have you handled that? Yeah, so, so what we're doing, um, I think Kelly, who's our team lead that we're promoting to head of people is a perfect example of that. You know, she's always worn multiple hats, but basically um, you know, over the last year had her allocate more and more of her time to what it is that head of people does, which is focus on retention of employees and focus on bringing new people to System 6 and then sort of training up a replacement to take on her team lead responsibilities, which is um, management of you know five to seven service delivery individuals. So for example, in like technology operations, we have somebody who's also been in the business for a long time, spending some of his time and increasingly more of it with an eye towards, you know, hey, you're coaching up one of your team members to take over that team so you can become sort of full-time 
in that seat, um, you know, at some point, probably in 2023. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, well, speaking of hiring and, and, and the people position, how have you found hiring in general? I mean, are you, is it as challenged, uh, for you as it is for somebody in like the kind of the blue collar world, or is it easier? Cause you can really, you know, basically hire from anybody in North America. I would say increasingly over the last couple of months, we are not able to hire as quickly as we would like to. Um, you know, the first half of the year, it felt like, okay, we're just hiring as fast as we want to keep up with demand and also to support the existing team, you know, i.e. freeing up some people on the team who are overworked. Um, really the last, like this fall into the winter, so October, November, December, um, we have not found as many quality applicants for um, what is becoming an increasing Indeed and LinkedIn spend on our end. So um, for us, it's a quality at the top of the funnel issue that needs more work for sure, because great market, tons of growth in front of us. But, you know, especially a business like ours, we can only grow as much as we can bring great people onto the team. So that's one of the top issues for next year is how do we improve the quality at the top of the funnel? Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. get more willing to hire somebody who isn't fully prepared and coach and train them and in, in wherever their gaps may be. Because right now mm -hmm. we're still pretty focused on, hey, can you really hit the job, run, hit the ground running? Um, and we're having a hard time finding those people. Yeah, yeah. So constrained on the supply side, but the demand side, it sounds like it's it's quite healthy. One of the themes of our conversation was was sales. So yeah. you, the, the the seller was uh, was kind of a, a natural salesman, yeah. um, and so and, and you were going to be taking on that mantle. How has that gone? And you had also follow up question. You had also asked about building a sales function that was not just you know the CEO of the business doing sales. How so on those two fronts? You as selling, how how are you as a salesman? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. Have you proven? And then the sales function. Where where does that stand? Yeah. Um, so the first one, I think, um, you know, it's it's panned out pretty well. So we've absolutely exceeded like my growth expectations. Um, and I think it's not so much, you know, like me being a, a brilliant salesperson, like by, by no means am I, um, it, but it's, you know, rather like having a business that the product is, if you can get to the right customer is a product that is very needed and it, you know, makes the sales process more manageable for somebody like me who's new into selling. I also think just doing a ton of it um, is incredibly helpful. So I'm, I'm trying to pull the stats up. Like I've done 130 sales calls this year. I did, um, like 75 in the, in 2021, in the first six months of owning the business. So just getting a ton of reps in has been yeah. very helpful. Um, yeah. so I think that has it been a big transition in sales? Yes. I think the channels have changed a little bit and, and our definition of ideal customer has changed a little bit. Um, you know, I'm sure on the margin, our close rates are a little bit lower than they might have been with the previous owner. But um, like he, Jeremy, still a good friend and still an advisor to me. You know, we talk once every couple of months, um, was absolutely very talented. So I'm sure that, you know, if he was selling at the same volume I was, close rates would have been a little bit higher. But mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, it's it's been pretty strong. Um, and I also think some of that comes from, and this is pretty typical in search deals, like I've just put in a lot more energy to sales than he was. I mean, he was spending less time on the business, classic, you know, margins were up because they weren't growing as fast because he was spending places in other parts of his life. I've come in, poured a lot more energy in, and that's enabled us to definitely, you know, drive sales faster than we were before I bought the business. 
Yeah. Yeah. And are you, do you have any sales experience before this or has this just been trial by fire learning, learning as you go? Uh, I mean, I don't have any traditional sales experience. I think in a lot of ways you're like you're always selling throughout life. Right. Um, right. At, you know, I think what is our sales process? It's a consultative sales process where, you know, we are really purchased based on trust and how much competence we can demonstrate through our sales process, which is really two touch points. Like I do a discovery call and then we take access to somebody's books. We dig through it. Our team asks some questions. And so, um, you know, it's not a hardcore technical product demo. I'm not like pitching five people inside of an enterprise organization where I have to figure out how to navigate those politics. It's, you know, sure. convincing a business owner who usually has a pretty acute need that we're going to get the job done. And yep. through trust, through competence and questions, through our reputation, through me being a searcher, selling to searchers sometimes, like it's it's manageable compared to if I was selling a very technical enterprise SaaS, it might be a different experience for me. Yeah, 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 sure. And then, but eventually yourself stepping out of the of, of being the primary salesperson at the business and building yeah. a proper sales function. I think you had happened. wanted to do that this year. Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. But yeah, for 2023, yeah. how's that looking? Is it still, this, is it still one of your goals? Yeah. Like for a near term sure. goal? Um, yeah. You know, it, and it's becoming more of a goal because as the business grows, more stuff, you know, everywhere across the organization ultimately rolls up to me. And, you know, I'm at times creating more bottlenecks than I was probably six months ago. And so um, sales is the most obvious, the easiest thing for me to, you know, get leverage through a hire. So it's something I've been working on the last month or two and really need to focus on um, like through the holidays because a lot of people have some quiet time where maybe they'll be more responsive to LinkedIn DMs and certainly have somebody in place in the first quarter. You can hold Great. me accountable to that. As, <laughs> yeah, others, well, as that... others internally and externally are holding me accountable. <laughs> you, you just touched on the fact that you're a former searcher and have um, sold into the search community, the SMB community. Um, that was something that you really had planned on from the outset. Has that has that come to fruition? That that that's been a good channel for you? Yeah, it, we, it has, um, and I feel like really lucky that it's it's played out that way. Um, our team loves working with search acquired businesses because at the end of the day, like we're looking for customers that want to modernize their finance operations. You know, want to use the best cloud tools, want to let us integrate them appropriately. You know, build some automations where it makes sense are going to be responsive, you know, searchers are all search CEOs are all of those things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's become, you know, and it snowballs, obviously we're a referral based business for now, uh, not doing a ton of outbound marketing. So it's become a bigger part of our business over the last six months than it was out of the gate. Um, we're, we probably have, so 15 or so search acquired businesses that we're now serving. And the interesting thing about them is they are, um, you know, larger, they're pushing our average customer size up because they're larger yeah. businesses. And yeah. they're also businesses that are more likely to want us to do bookkeeping, payroll, bill pay, invoicing, um, you know, integrating those automations across those. So we're doing a deeper set of services for those businesses. So, um, you know, more of them are accrual based, which is something that, you know, we're able to play in where maybe some other people can't. So um, it's been a good channel for us. I, you know, one thing I consider is I feel like a lot of that is tied to me because I'm a searcher. So how does that yeah. scale? Um, yeah. You know, there's other people in the industry providing professional services that I can talk to because they tackle the same questions. But yeah, it's 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 panned out and been a, a nice channel for us, both on the traditional and the, the self-funded side. Yeah. 
Great. Well, you're you're really uh, a visible uh, visible person in the search community. We saw each other in Orlando at SM Bash, yeah. and we'll see Not each other again in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, me spending time on Twitter, I guess, is marketing costs. You could call it that way. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, at least you can justify it. The rest of yeah. us, less so. The, a couple more questions for you, Chris, before yeah. we wrap. The, um, one of the big themes of our conversation uh, back in November of last year was the flavor, kind of considering the flavor of search, because your mm -hmm. own search, you had kind of come out of the gate oriented toward doing a traditional search fund because of your kind of your cohort from a you know, very well-known business school. That's kind of what everybody was doing or a lot of people were doing. Yeah. And then as you, you kind of kept your mind open and as you considered things, you ultimately ended up as a self-funded SBA um, acquirer. Any mm -hmm. reflections on that uh, and how you feel about the, the search path you chose now 14 months later? Yeah, um, plenty. I think um, the first thing is, you know, it's really hard to find a good business to acquire. So to the extent, you know, you can keep your options open by self-funding and allowing yourself to buy a smaller business, which is what I did, use an SBA loan. Um, I think that is advantageous because it just increases the chances that you're going to buy a business, which is like buy a good business at a reasonable price that you know you want to run and grow yourself for five to 10 years. You've probably heard me mention SM Bash, the conference in Orlando for acquisition entrepreneurs, SMB owners, and investors. It was such a valuable event, I met no less than 12 Acquiring Minds guests there in person, hosts of other podcasts in this space. And if you're on SMB Twitter, it was a who's who of all the biggest accounts. Well, SM Bash is coming back around, this time in Austin in April, and I'll definitely be going back. I'm told by the SM Bash team that this year they're going even deeper on content relevant to search, including a focus on finding investors for your acquisition and inviting a lot of investors to attend as well. For serious searchers or those who've recently acquired, SM Bash is really the leading event. There are others associated with universities, but as far as I'm aware, this is the biggest and best indie conference for entrepreneurship through acquisition. Check out smbash.com, six letters, S-M-B-A-S-H.com, or click the link in the show notes. See you in Austin. I don't think that like it should be an only, I'm only going to do SBA, you know, if you, if you raise traditional surge capital, because, um, that's, you know, what you need to do financially, then obviously that does become a bit more like you're only going to buy a larger business at that point. But, right. um, if you're going to stay self-funded during, during the search, I would keep your eyes open and be willing to look at three, four, $5 million EBITDA businesses. Yes. You'll own a lot smaller percentage of that business, but there's a lot of benefits to being in a bigger business in terms of how quickly you can scale how you spend your time as the CEO, certainly like in a small organization like ours, I sometimes spend my time on stuff that like is probably not the highest and best use of my time to really scale the you know equity value, which is ultimately what you're trying to, you know, your responsibility. Um, and sometimes you're just like got to do stuff because it rolls to you. And I, I don't mind doing that, but um, you know, over time, I have to get myself out of doing that. And it's harder to do yeah. that in a, in a small organization. So um, there are definitely benefits to size, I think, in terms of how you um, spend your time. I, I mean, I think the simplest way to think about it is like if you do self-funded deal, you raise your floor, let's say over the first five years, you're going to raise your floor, assuming you don't like go belly up on your personally guaranteed loan. Um, but hopefully that, that's then that's a very small percentage of the deals. But hey, you own a large percentage of a strong cash flowing business bought at like a lower multiple 
for, for you financially, for you lifestyle-wise, like that's a good outcome um, if you're not able to, you know, materially grow the business. But I also think that you lower your ceiling if you do an SBA deal. Um, you know, there's searchers out there in traditional that buy $10 million of EBITDA or $6 million of EBITDA. And if they double that business in five years, you know, just in terms of their career development, their financial outcome, that's probably a higher ceiling. But if you do a traditional search, you know, you, it's a lot easier to not have a great outcome, to have no outcome at all because you didn't buy a business. Um, so those are kind of my two main reflections. Stay self-funded if you can to keep the options open because it's really hard to find a business. I have plenty of traditional friends who wish they had been self-funded because they just didn't really find anything over two years or they found something yeah. small and they really wish they had been self-funded because they know more of it. Um, but there's a lot of benefits to buying bigger if you can find it. And what about the the question of kind of having an investor, uh, more access to more investors and, and guidance, really? So I know that you have yeah. a couple of investors in your deal, and, and they and they were at least when we talked before, they've been really helpful to you. Um, but it's still a much smaller circle of individuals that you have access to when you have a problem. Has yeah. that been something that you've chafed at, or has it been fine? No, I, I'm I'm very happy with that, and I think that like it just depends on the individual. Like, if you're the type of person that never wants a boss and never wants accountability to anybody else, then like, yeah, there's the true self-funded deal might be the best path for you. Um, but I, while they don't have control, you know, from an ownership perspective, I want to treat them like they're my board. Um, and we've had board meetings every quarter. Some of them have been more formal and more legit than others, and the ones that are more formal that I spend more time preparing for them with more in-depth materials, those are, are, are absolutely like much more helpful. Um, it helps me pull out and think about the business at a more strategic level because, you know, they're in a bunch of different businesses, so they can give me more broader context. And it also, you know, creates some accountability um, for me, which I, I think is important um, to, you know, it creates accountability for you to spend time on the important, not urgent stuff, which is hard to do in the day-to-day. -day. So okay. I... Um, you know, and the number, like, I think even for most searchers who have 15 plus investors, like they're only talking to three to five, their board is three to five people. And then if they need to get to somebody that's not on their board, it's going to go through their board anyways, you know? And so I feel like having th four in my deal, three that are kind of active on my board, um, is the right number. And I, I don't think it's drastically different than people who have more investors. It's just, I don't have those kind of silent minority that other people might. Chris, when you first uh, took ownership of the business and became its its leader, do you reflect back now? And was there anything that you were doing that you could have done better? Like, were you maybe over eager in one domain or not paying attention uh, enough in another? Or totally. So the most obvious tactical thing is uh, getting get in front of customers faster. Um, I was a little, and you know, this is somewhat based on guidance I got internally. Um, and I was, you know, very much wanting to sort of structure a lot of what I did based on, you know, feedback I was getting internally. But some of the feedback internally was like, hey, you getting out in front of our top 20 customers, introducing yourself, sort of saying there's been a transition might like cause some disruption, might cause some worry from the customers of like, oh, wow, the business has changed hands. What does that mean? You know, most of these people, our top customers were talking to Jeremy on a frequent basis. So like, why should they now um, talk to me? And... I think that was a, absolutely a mistake because one, it, that's a very nice like 
opportunity to just go get in front of customers and hear from them. Like, what do we do well? What do we not do well? What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? And anytime you can have that conversation, that's like extremely helpful as the leader of the business to talk to your customers. Um, it seems like kind of silly right now, you know, that I didn't spend more time on and out of the gate. And then two, I think, um, you know, there's probably one customer in particular that has churned that I think like me having more of a relationship with, you know, could have prevented that. These are all, you know, relative percentages of revenue customers, one, two, three percent at the top end. So it's not a massive yeah. issue, but that was definitely a miss. I think not just sort of getting in front of the customers on my own, um, even if that wasn't necessarily exactly what the team thought was best. And I think the second more like, you know, wishy-washy, hard to define thing is, um, you know, I agree with like, don't make a ton of changes out of the gate, but also, you know, find, I would have found my voice earlier, I think. And, um, you know, I, I think I was very much out of the gate trying to be extremely deferential. Um, and that's helpful, but like, if there's things that I see that I want to have happen, like just push it, push it. And, you know, you are ultimately the leader of the organization. And I think it's okay to put your, your, you know, your fingerprint on certain things that, um, you think are important. And I, I think it, you know, it does help establish a little bit of authority and legitimacy as well. If you're going to make a key bet relatively early on that works out, I think that's helpful. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you if you feel that way now in retrospect because you do have that confidence, but you just it just takes some time to earn yeah. that sense of confidence to to be able to, to yeah, make a, I mean, a call like that. Everything's twenty twenty hindsight, right? Like every time something happens, it goes wrong. Ultimately, it's it's on you, and so you think about what what could I have done differently? Like, you know, fortunately, there haven't been any massive massive hiccups in the first fifteen months, which is a lot of what you're trying to accomplish in, early out of the gate. But I do think the customer thing for sure. Um, yeah, is something everybody should do. And, um, you know, just because the previous customers aren't used to talking to the owner a lot doesn't mean that the new one, you know, the, the new one shouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So the advice there would, would be, you know, if your inclination is to kind of like not, you're, you're worried you're going to upset the apple cart or, or, or spook your existing customers. Instead, the, the more the more important thing there is actually there's an opportunity to create value by having an excuse to reach out to customers and Absolutely. having an excuse to get in front of them and 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 get some feedback from them and it's it, use it as an opening totally. rather than something where yeah great. yeah yeah because it feels it, you know when you're introducing yourself eight months later like it it feels a little bit odd sometimes <laughs> I've, I've had that conversation <laughs> sure. too. Last question for you, Chris. One of the things that j just kind of understanding how you feel about the business itself and the in the industry. So we talked some in our mm -hmm. in our first conversation about bookkeeping and why you liked it and why you like this particular business. It's a huge market, obviously. Um, the working capital situation was great. I mean, you guys charge on a weekly basis. Uh, money comes in and then it goes out to to your to to your cost to your employees. Um, so how, how do you how do you feel about the bookkeeping business in general and System 6's own uh, as an entity within that industry? Yeah, um, I think still very, very, I mean, stronger than than when you than when we bought the business. So I think that's great. That's that's a good place to be. I think yeah. um, the you know, the two main things that loom are so, yeah, massive market, growing market like mission critical service demanded relatively low cost, you know, like every, you know, little business class or tweet, Twitter thread, like those check a lot of boxes. Um, Recurring. So really strong in all those things. The, the two looming things that are considerations are, um, 
you know, it is not a necessarily like a super high barriers to entry industry. Anybody can start a bookkeeping business. So that means, um, you know, you have to be cognizant of pricing. Like we're intentionally a premium provider. We're not the cheapest product on the market. And we own that and tell every prospect that. Um, but like that means we need to make sure we're delivering really good value because there are people out there for bookkeeping charging $400 a month or $300 a month, which is like way cheaper than, you know, our lowest touch service. And there's people driving a lot of their service offshore. And so that allows them to drive costs down even further. So making sure that, um, you know, I think how we're going to handle that is not try and get super competitive, but rather try and make sure we're delivering premium quality and premium product. I think if you're just doing once a month after the fact bookkeeping, like that's, you start to get into a price war. So for us, it's really trying to drive into the full suite of finance operations. So bookkeeping, payroll, bill pay, invoicing, like we're going to run your day-to-day -day finance organization. We're not your controller or your CFO, but being there, um, is one that that's kind of our strategy to counter the reality of there's a ton of people providing the services we provide and some of them are able to drive costs down through offshore. Um, so that's one consideration tangential to that is automation. I think we're a long ways away from automation eliminating what we do, but if in five years from now, we're not using more of it to make ourselves more efficient, um, you know, that's, that's not a good thing because then it just, again, we're going to, our costs are going to have to keep going up if we're not getting more efficient. And then, you know, competitive dynamic gets more challenged. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, our business only scales as much as we're able to hire and retain fantastic people. And that's our number one mission and has to be like trying to build a great place to work first and foremost. Of course, if you're a great place to work, it means you're delivering good service. Cause like, if you're not doing a good job, you're not gonna be a good place to work cause you're gonna have problems and angry customers. But, um, that's one thing I didn't really appreciate when I bought the business that Jeremy did a great job building a culture that's really focused on team first. And we're kind of doubling down on that because, um, yeah, you know, we're not a business where you can grow just by buying another manufacturing piece of machinery or, you know, in software, it's relatively low marginal cost for growth. Like we grow pretty linearly with our team. And so that means we need to be able to continue to hire and retain. Uh Sure. And and what about the growth strategy of more acquisitions? You had mentioned in our previous call about like QuickBooks has a whole directory totally. of, of bookkeeping businesses around the country that you can just kind of start reaching out to. Yeah. Um, is that, does that strategy still seem viable? Yeah, for sure. It's viable. One, um, you know, I haven't run at it because I haven't had, I've had a few acquisition conversations that have come up, but you know, I'm in the business, especially on the sales side enough that like, I don't feel like I have the time to go run on it. And that's another reason that I need to do a better job of like pulling myself out, um, from some things. But the other thing, you know, and having to know some bigger players in the space that have done some acquisitions is, um, you know, when there is a very strong organic growth opportunity where there is in our industry, you know, acquiring another business where there's inevitably going to be some people churn, not everyone that you is going to stay on that comes over from that team. There's going to be some customer churn. Some customers may not want to transition. They may be underpriced. You know, um, it just makes it like more of a consideration. Like there's a lot of integration work that needs yeah. to happen. And yeah. if you're in a business that has a ton of organic growth, like organic growth is doesn't have as much as many of those challenges. So 
For now, it's focused on organic. I want to get that really humming on its own. And then I think be more strategic in M&A. Like what we will do add-ons, but I don't think it will be in the short to medium term, like the primary focus of our growth strategy. Great. Yeah, I have uh, an interview airing in early January with um, a couple of entrepreneurs who acquired a landscaping business, and they thought that their whole growth strategy was going to be acquisition. And once they got yeah. in there, they recognized that organic growth was just dollar for dollar a lot, a yeah. lot more affordable yeah, it, it, um, and without any headaches and without any uncertainty. Yeah, you don't get scale as fast. So that's part of the reason, you know, acquisitions are attractive. They just help you scale up quicker. Uh, yeah. And I like there's people doing them, people on Twitter doing them in our ecosystem that have done a great job. You know, Patrick Dichter has done a couple of add-ons and, and I respect that. Right. And I think we'll right. do them over time. I just like, I want to find the right ones and not like just do a deal to do a deal when there's such an organic opportunity. Great. Chris, how can people reach you if they have a question? Um, Chris at system6.com or um, my Twitter handle, I think is CTW underscore SMB. Very good. Chris, thanks very much for coming back on and sharing with, with us how things are going at System 6. Uh, look forward to, um, to a check-in in 2023. Yeah. Thanks so much, Will. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.